So in the last several Sundays, we've been basically reading kind of over the shoulder of the Apostle Paul as he writes a letter that he addresses as being to the church of God that is at Corinth. And we've kind of read along as, as Paul praised God for all the spiritual gifts and the momentum that God had provided for this church. And he's offering thanks for the, the faith and the strength of the Corinthians. And his praise and his compliments are sincere, but now once he has their attention, Paul immediately begins to address the problems that had begun to plague the church. And the first problem that he addresses, to which he devotes four chapters, concerns factions within the church itself. And that's, that's kind of why these names of Paul and Apollos keep coming up week after week, and we're going to see it a little bit probably in next week's lectionary too. But remember, he said, some of you claim I belong to Paul, and, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Peter, or I belong to Christ. And Paul is stressing the fact that any preacher of the gospel is merely a servant of Jesus, and that they, and all believers, should faithfully put aside any of their differences when they enter into the presence of Jesus Christ. And to remember that no matter what's going on outside us and around us, as Paul writes, whether it's the world or life and death or the present and the future, that everything belongs to you. Everything belongs to you. All the events that go on around us, anything that can possibly happen to us, whether it's calamities or, or trials or persecutions, or the opposite, whether it's prosperity or advantages or any of the privileges that come to us in this present age, everything that takes place within the overarching sovereignty of God will in some way in some way, be for our good and advance our interest as God works out his plan and his kingdom. And as Paul is exhorting the Corinthians now toward unity, one of the things I found was really amazing was he doesn't demand that they resolve whatever differences existed between them. But rather he reminds them of the all-important unity that binds them together that supersedes every difference of opinion. And we're going to see that in the reading this morning. This is 1 Corinthians Chapter 3, he writes, Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. So Paul is saying he hopes that the love for Christ that the people have and for each other would bind that church community together despite any of their differences and lead people to achieve a faith and a godliness in anticipation of that eminent second coming that all of us are looking for. And Paul sets forth a, a principle here kind of about this. It becomes embedded in church doctrine that I think really is best summarized by a Lutheran theologian in 1626 who wrote, no matter what type of situation we face, we should keep in necessary things unity, in uncertain things freedom, but in everything compassion. Right? He said we should keep in necessary things unity, in uncertain things freedom, but in everything compassion. And then you say, well, so that's a great little catchphrase. That's something really nifty you could put on a bumper sticker or a Facebook post. But come on, like, how, how do we really do that? How do we resolve those differences between what we see 
around us and the promises of God that we say that we believe in. Like, for instance, how do we sit at a kitchen table and look at a stack of bills that's bigger than our monthly income? Right? How do we sit there on an exam table and listen to a doctor give us one more troubling test result? How do we watch day after day as opposing political parties sit across from each other at hearings with tables covered with reams and reams of competing facts? And personally, personally, how do you and I set aside our worries and our fears and our prejudices and finally get to that overarching view, God's view, that transcends all of our individual personal opinions? Well, thankfully, Paul gives us that answer. And he does that through this letter to the Corinthians as he talks about a very different kind of table, a table where grace and mercy and compassion is made available and where all of our differences disappear. And I'm going to show you what I mean. He continues writing, For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death again until he comes. Now you might wonder, what in the world does that have to do with any of the problems that we face or the, the divisions in that Corinthian community or anywhere for that matter? And the real answer is that this table of the Lord is the ultimate equalizer. The ultimate equalizer is the final bar of truth. So I want you to think about this. On the night that Jesus was betrayed and he gathered those disciples for that meal, there was a whole variety of people around that table, wasn't there? From the once rich tax collector to a political dissident to ordinary uneducated fishermen. I mean, just think about the diversity of people that Jesus surrounded himself with because at this tiny little dinner table, you've got someone like Simon the Zealot, a man who, whose political leanings desired to forcibly overthrow the Roman government. And then sitting right next to him is Matthew, the tax collector, who had gotten rich by collaborating with the Romans to exploit his fellow citizens. They're at the same table. But Simon and Matthew, who were natural enemies, both recognized Jesus as the only thing that could fulfill the deepest longings of not just their own hearts, but the hearts of humanity. And I think that's a really beautiful illustration of the peace and the unity that Jesus Christ brings to us, not just in that first century, but still brings today as he transforms us by the good news of the gospel that's shared around his table from the very first time he instituted that meal all the way down to the one that's set before us today that we're going to partake of. Through a grace and a mercy that transcends everything. Everything. I mean, think about it. Before the meal even began, Jesus already knew that two of the people that were sitting there were going to sin against him. One was going to betray him. Another one was going to deny him. He knew the faults and the failures of each and every man around that table, but he served them all equally. He knelt and washed their feet. He broke the bread for and shared the cup with each of them. Their economic status didn't matter. 
Their religious past didn't matter. Their weakness and shortcomings didn't matter. Their ethnicity didn't matter. Their political leanings didn't matter. Because this meal was for all of them. It was for all of them equally. So that everything that may have divided or distinguished them in the world outside that upper room was of absolutely no significance in the presence of Christ. And that's why this meal is so significant as we gather especially today in Jesus' name because communion is not just something we do as part of our worship. It should be how we live our lives. Not just collectively, but individually as we recognize the presence of Jesus here with us. Here with us, just like he was on that first communion night. And you know, I know I shared this before in Sunday school, but every time I think of that phrase, first communion, I think about a time when J.J. was in kindergarten. He was reading a story about the first Thanksgiving, and Vicky was explaining it to him, and then he turns to Mommy and says, Mommy, were you there? <laughs> Mommy, were you there? Now, of course, I wanted to be a good dad and set a good example, so I said, Buddy, of course your mom wasn't at the first Thanksgiving. She was too busy chasing dinosaurs. <laughs> and you notice I say that when I'm, what, 15 feet away from her? But, but you know, that's, that's funny. But, you know, our Jewish brothers and sisters, even today, when they gather around the family dinner table to eat that Seder meal, they retell the events of the Exodus in the first person, like they were there as if they were the first generation to leave Egypt and to be released from slavery and to experience that Passover that foreshadowed this meal that we're going to participate in in a few minutes. This Passover meal is the primary subject of this week's Old Testament reading from the book of Exodus, where we pick up the story that we've been following of Pharaoh and Moses. When that battle between God and Pharaoh comes to a dramatic conclusion as the last three of the ten plagues are unleashed on Egypt. Remember, there's the swarm of locusts that devoured all the, the plants and all the trees. There's that palpable darkness that covered the land for three days and nights. And finally, all the firstborn of Egypt that died while they slept. But you know, before that plague hit, God told his people about his plan to save them. He gave them a plan. This is what he said in Exodus. While the Israelites were still in the land of Egypt, the Lord gave the following instructions to Moses and Aaron. He said, from now on, this month will be the beginning of months. It'll be the first month of the year for you. Announce to the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each family should choose a lamb or a young goat for a sacrifice. One animal for each household. Take special care of this chosen animal until the evening of the 14th day of this first month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel must slaughter their lamb. They're to take some of the blood and smear it on the sides and top of the door frames of the houses where they eat the animal. And on that night I will pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son and firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt. I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. But the blood on your doorpost will serve as a sign, marking the houses where you're staying. And when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. When I see the blood, I'll pass over you. And you see how transformational this meal was supposed to be? I mean, how life-changing. It's like, it's like you didn't have a reset button on life. It's like a do-over. It's a new day on the calendar. He said it's a beginning of months. 
And you know, that idea of a, a new start is pretty attractive sometimes, isn't it? I mean, no matter who you are or where you are in this journey through the world, we all get worn out from time to time, don't we? We all get fatigued. We all get dissatisfied with our lot in life. But then God comes along and says, when I stretch out my hand to rescue you, I make everything new. And we're not talking about time travel. We're not talking about a, a complete disconnect from the past, but we're talking about a rebeginning, a rebeginning of a life that is consciously lived in the light of God's holy presence. And if that ever really happens for you, if God ever really brings you to that point, if we ever really see the contrast between the holiness of, of our God and the depravity of our lives, then everything else falls into place as God draws us closer to himself and further away from sin. Just like he demonstrated for his people and his instructions for celebrating that very first Passover. I want to read that to you too. He's, he told them on the first day of the festival, remove every trace of yeast from your homes. Anyone who eats bread made with yeast during the seven days of the festival will be cut off from the community of Israel. Sounds a little strange, maybe, doesn't it? Do you know when our brothers and sisters, though, prepare for Passover, each family member goes through the house and they search all of the rooms to make sure that all the leaven is taken out of the home. And then they take it outside and burn it. And there's an important application here that I want you to see. Because leaven, you know, for you bakers out there, you know, that's the ingredient used in baking bread that creates all those great little holes that are inside there in the loaves. Pat's smiling, she's my resident baker. And it happens because, you know, that yeast permeates the dough by releasing gases that cause that batch of dough to rise. So in the context of the passage here, it's representing a corrupting influence that affects all the rest. A kind of a hidden uncleanness that manipulates the other parts, like, like a, a lump of yeast in a batch of dough. And in the very same way, spiritual leaven are those, those sinful impulses, those self-important times of pride within us that corrupt our soul and sours it and manifests itself in sinful desires and depression and unrest and rebellion against God. In other words, resisting God leads to sin, and then that sin has a leavening effect on all of our souls. Because, you know, you simply can't just intentionally include a little bit of sin in your personal life without it affecting your spiritual life. I'm going to give you an example of that. My, uh, my brother Ken Scott gave me a, a little story last Sunday that I think illustrates that really perfectly. So if you don't like the story, it's his fault. <laughs> but that's a, it's a story of two teenagers who asked their father if they could go to the, the theater to watch a movie that all of their friends had seen. Right? Have you had that conversation? All my friends have seen it, so you're right. So now after reading some reviews about the movie, the father told them they couldn't go because of the movie's rating, because of what was in it. Oh boy, did they complain. Oh, they were upset. But dad said, you know, sorry kids, that's it. The, the movie shows nudity and immorality, which is something God hates, in a way that makes it look normal and acceptable, and it's not. So you're not going. The kid said, but, but dad, those are just very, very small parts of the story. I mean, the movie's two hours long, and those scenes are just, you know, scattered around through there. Just a few minutes of the, the total film, the rest of it's great. The dad said, sorry kids, the answer is still no, and that's, that's the end of the discussion. So the teenagers, of course, walk all hangdog, you know, and sullen into the, the family room and slump down on the couch, and as they're sulking there, they, 
Surprised, they hear the sound of their dad still in the kitchen. It sounds like he's making something. And in a few minutes, they recognize this wonderful aroma of brownies baking in the oven. And one of the teenagers says to the other, that dad must be feeling guilty, so now he's going to try to make up to us with some fresh brownies. <laughs> then the dad just then calls the dad, the kids into the, the kitchen, and he sets down this warm tray of brownies in front of them and gives them a big smile. And their father said, now guys, before you eat, I want to tell you, I, I made these brownies just for you. I made them from scratch. I made them from the very best ingredients. I used your grandma's recipe. There's just one, one little thing that I added to them. But don't you worry about it, because I only added just the tiniest bit of it to your brownies. In fact, if, if you compared that to all the other ingredients, why, it, it's practically insignificant. So go ahead. Take a bite and let me know what you think. They said, well, well, Dad, would you mind telling us what that special ingredient was? What's that mystery ingredient you stuck in there? The dad said, well, what are you so worried about? I mean, it's less than a teaspoonful, and I mixed it up really good. So there couldn't possibly be more than just the tiniest pieces scattered throughout it. And you won't even notice it. The kid said, come on, Dad, just, just tell us what the ingredient is. And he said, well, okay, I guess if you insist that extra ingredient came from a little present that your puppy left me to step in on the back porch this morning. Now, right then, of course, both kids instantly dropped their brownies back on the plate and they began looking at their fingers in horror, right? And almost with one voice, they yelled, Dad, why did you do that? We can't eat these. The whole thing is ruined. The whole thing is ruined. And that's a pretty good lesson, isn't it, about how just a, a little bit affects all the rest. Because in the same way, Jesus Christ, our Passover and sin don't mix. And you and I need to Trust Jesus Christ to clean out that sin from our lives in the same way the Jewish community removed the leaven from their homes before that sacred Passover meal. And the reason that we do that is because our Messiah has been sacrificed like that Passover lamb to remove our unrighteousness and to recreate us as his own special people. Which is why when the Apostle Paul continues his letter that we've been reading with him to the Corinthians, and he comes to the subject of the Lord's Supper, this is what he writes. He says, so anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourselves before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That's pretty sobering, isn't it? And Paul is saying that our preparation for this holy meal should remind us about the unrighteous things that we tolerate in our own lives. And he continues, he says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us, so let us celebrate the festival not with the old bread of wickedness and evil, but with the new bread, with the new bread of sincerity and truth, transcendent truth, so that those immoral thoughts and actions don't get a foothold in us and begin to affect all of our spiritual lives and ultimately lead to our death. And so that we can celebrate this meal in all of its meaning. So we can celebrate this meal in all of its meaning as we, as we come to the table. And when we do that today, I, I ask you, don't just, don't just remember, but reflect. Don't, don't just react, but reignite. Don't just go through the motions, but relive the amazing sacrifice that our Lord has made for us.
Let's have a beginning of months. Right now. Let's take the unity and the purity and the fellowship that we experience in this meal today and take it with us out into the world and live it. Taking all of these experiences of this, this sacred supper, this ultimate expression of the worship experience that links past with present and future together and provides a connection to every level of our, ourselves and our senses. I mean, think about it. We, we see the table laid out before us, right? We hear the, the words of institution repeated. You can smell the fresh bread when the top is open. You can taste the tartness of the wine. You can feel the touch of someone's hand as they pass you the elements. But if you allow it, it will not only fill all of those senses, but it will go even further and bypass your stomach and strike a chord on your heart. As we eat this bread and drink this cup in the present, commemorating Christ's death in the past until he comes again for us in the future, comes to a, a world of sick and sinful and divided people that will only ever be united when we are all united in him. Amen? Let's pray together. God, our Father, it's, it's right always and everywhere, Lord, to give you our thanks and praise, especially, Father, we, we thank and praise you as we commemorate this supper and as we share as true brothers and sisters, Lord, this perfect sacrifice of our Lord for not only the sins of the world, but for our personal rebellion. And so, gracious God, remembering now your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we take from your creation this bread and this wine, and we ask you to pour out your Holy Spirit upon us and upon these your gifts that this meal may be for us a communion with our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.